All right, everybody, we're going to get started. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the first installment in the Middle East History Lecture Series for the spring of 2014. I would like to thank my co-organizer and partner in crime, Shahzad Ahmadi, who is, like myself, a doctoral student in the Department of History. I should introduce myself. Hi, I'm Christopher Rose. I'm uh, Outreach Director with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies and also a doctoral student in the Department of History. Um, and uh, Shaz and I have been co-organizing this. I want to thank our co-sponsors, uh, the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, the Department of History, and the Institute for Historical Studies, who is actively taking photos as we speak. Um, and it's my pleasure to welcome today's speaker, Dr. Pamela Karimi from uh, the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. Um, she is the author of, you can see I brought my cheat sheet here, uh, Domesticity in the Consumer Culture in Iran, Interior Revolutions of the Modern Era, and co-editor of a special journal volume, Images of the Child and Childhood in Modern Muslim Contexts. She's the recipient of the UMass President Creative Economy Fund, the Social Science Research Council, and the American Council of Learned Societies. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to Texas, where we, as you can see, we cranked the temperature down for you so you'd feel like you were at home. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> So first of all, uh, let me uh, thank you for being here. This is really an honor to be at UT Austin. I've already seen uh, uh, your wonderful graduate students here, and I'm, and I'm really impressed by uh, the Middle Eastern Studies um, uh, program here. Um, thanks to Shahrazad for um, uh, helping me and being with me since yesterday, and Bariana and Chris have been in touch um, for a while now. So thank you, everybody, for inviting me here. It's really an honor to be here. Um, so um, this is a rather long paper. I try to take some breaks in the middle. Uh, if you have any questions, if you get tired in the middle of it, just let me know, <laughs> and I'll stop. The other thing that I wanted to mention is that, obviously, I know that this is Middle Eastern Studies and History Department. As you can see, I teach in the College of Art, and my degree is actually in art history, so I deal with a lot of images, and um, I am an architect by training, so architecture uh, has a special place in my scholarly work. Um, so today, you see a lot of images, and you see a lot of visual, uh, close visual analysis of, uh, of images from the Iranian mass media. So allow me to start by a little introduction. For over a century, Iranian private spaces went through multiple transformations that were not necessarily linear. By that, I mean certain spaces that had at some point been overtly westernized were at other times modified again to serve their original traditional purposes. Often, tradition and modernity alternated between public and private spaces. When public space became more westernized than secular, the private became more conservative and vice versa. In 1892, the Andarun, or the inner women's section of the house or the palace, which had been stigmatized by Westerners as a place of imprisonment and women's uh, oppression, turned out to be a site of political activism in response to a monopoly awarded uh, to the British uh, entrepreneur G.F. Talbot to cultivate and sell Iranian toba tobacco, there were large-scale protests, but it was a tobacco boycott by the women of the, palace of, the, um, of the palace harem that finally forced Nasir al-Din Shah of the Qajar dynasty to withdraw the concession. 
More than four decades later, when public space had become more secularized through Reza Shah's unveiling Act of 1936, the private space of the Andarun became again a much more isolated, detached space. Women who were committed to their religious beliefs and to the veil were barred from the main streets and forced to walk along side streets. If they did not, these women who had spent their entire lives wearing the veil would have had to remain in the Andarun. In the words of sociologist Homahud Far, quote, women became even more dependent on men since they now had to ask for men's collaboration in order to perform activities they had previously performed independently. This gave men a degree of control over women they had never before possessed. It also reinforced the idea that households without adult men were odd and abnormal. During Mohammad Reza Shah's period, as public space was becoming progressively more secular, the private space of the home became a place where people could exercise their religious rituals more freely. In those days, Fariba Adel Khah observes, quote, the Quran was a rare presence. It was shelved high up wrapped in a piece of cloth to avoid its being uh, contaminated by contact with unclean hands or dust and to keep it out of children's reach. People arranged their movements around the room in relation to the holy book. You did not turn your back to it. You avoided any rude, even worse, any immoral attitude. You did not stretch your legs out to the direction of the book or the Quran. And she goes on and on. I love this passage from her book, Being Modern in Iran. The, now, these episodes foreshadow the complexity of the dialogue of public and private in later decades. While much has certainly been written about women and veiling in modern Iran, little has been written on the historical contexts that have defined the meanings of veils and walls, privacy and publicity. With the exception of a few studies, there's little debate on the definitions of the, ter of the terms public and private in modern Iran. This inattention may simply reflect on the scarcity of interdisciplinary approaches to Iranian domesticity or to issues of everyday life and material culture. It also likely reflects on the Orientalist assumptions about the Middle East that the topic of people's private lives um, is a taboo category and that there hasn't been enough evidence so that historians cannot research it when they approach uh, the Middle Eastern home. Contrary to this assumption in this presentation, I will show how private life and home life were always part of the public discourse of modern Iran and that we can trace the development of domesticity through these public records. This essay also suggests the transformations of private life as a lens of historical analysis. Portions of this presentation are derived from my recently uh, published book, Domesticity and Consumer Culture in Iran, while the book covers a broad uh, uh, you know, time period, roughly from the late 19th century to today, here I will only highlight a number of case studies showing the portrayal of private life in the Iranian mass media from the 1950s onward. 
In addition to presenting these case studies, I show how Iranians have contested the dichotomies of public and private as manifested in that public sphere. I will present this resistance not just as a way to demonstrate the the heroism of resistors, but by letting these resistors, to quote from Leila Abulogod, practices, these resistors practices teach us about the complex inner working of historically changing structures of power in Iran. Iranians have resisted the regulations regarding public and private, but they do not always reject these rules outright. This form of resistance thus does not mean a complete rejection of the status quo. It means that Iranians operate through in-between spaces wherein there are many gradations of public and private and of zones of powerfulness and powerlessness. Now, a little bit about post-World War II developments. Reza Shah was forced to abdicate in 1941, an event that led to the increased freedom of expression for the public, for, for the people of Iran, and also to free elections. Mohammad Mossadegh was selected prime minister in 1951 and um, presided over a fledgling democracy until 1953, when he was ousted in the coup sponsored by the CIA. During this period, the Marxist Tudeh party was quite prominent involved in both um, political and cultural activities. Now, this is the cover of the party's uh, women's bi-monthly Bidariyama, or Our Awakening. Writing in the first issue of Bidariyama, which was published in June of 1944, in an article titled Bidar Shabid, or Wake Up, contributor Mariam Firuz regarded Iranian society as a dark house filled with cigarette and opium fumes. Under the influence of these drugs, she said, the people trapped in this house had become listless and lazy. They did not even bother with opening the windows to let the fresh air in. The home's residents sometimes saw the beautiful outside through this curtain, but because of their fatigue, they found it almost impossible to reach the outside. The author mentions that although men sometimes had a chance to get close to this window and possibly get some fresh air, women were always forced away from it and had no opportunity to access the outside world. The house and, it, and its tasks were, according to the journal, seen as a reason for limitation of women's life in Iran. The magazine deemed Soviet society to be the most advanced when it came to affairs of women and families, quoting the Iranian Marxist and Tehran University professor Saeed Nafisi, who periodically paid visits to Russia to attend cultural events. The magazine portrayed Soviet women as not only open-minded and active in the public sphere, but also reported that despite their simple look and modest outfits, these women possessed a unique natural beauty that surpassed women of other nations. Hamid Navizi writes, hard work has allowed these women to stay fresh and in shape, he wrote. There's hardly any fat or out of shape woman, and most of the time in the Soviet Union, you see young women around you. It seems as if the Soviet woman never gets old. Nafisi seems to have been captivated by the views of the Bolshevik activist Alexandra Kolante, who depicted the ideal communist woman as very slim and very simple type. 
The more popular Iranian newspapers did not describe Soviet life in such positive terms. In a 1952 article titled Love in the Soviet Union, the popular bi-weekly taraqi, or progress, reported on the difficulties of married life in Russia. A caption to a picture portraying a family jammed into a small bedroom reads, Family life in Russia. Most families have no more than one or two bedrooms. While acknowledging that love and family life were different before Stalinist time, the newspapers still found these domestic issues in the early days of the Soviet Union to be problematic. Featuring passages from Kalante, the article refers to the time of Lenin when free love, anti-marriage, and anti-monogamist thoughts were advocated by some. As a result of these ideas, the Soviet were not only endangering needed population increase, but also causing high rates of abortion and single motherhood. Such criticisms of the USSR began to increasingly occupy the pages of the popular press as Iran began to be um, inclined towards to be more inclined towards the U.S. The American struggle to keep Iran from communism marked the beginning of heavy U.S. support for the Pahlavi monarchy. In its efforts to prevent Iran from falling into Soviet hands, the American government did not restrict itself to political means alone. In fact, the United States hoped that a quote-unquote quiet diplomacy instead of war and violence would produce the desired results. You should not start to fight if you cannot win sometimes just to be right is enough. This statement came from a short American film made soon after the Azerbaijan crisis and the temporary occupation of northwestern Iran by the Soviets. The documentary opens with a speech by the U.S. President Harry Truman about Iran and goes on to celebrate America's success in the Azerbaijan conflict, saving a quote-unquote small nation from becoming communist. Interestingly, Iran was personified in this film as a bride at a village wedding. The ceremony is upset by the approach of the Russian soldiers, but as soon as help from the United States arrives and the Soviets are driven away, the ceremony takes place and the whole village comes to life. Spring replaces the dark winter and nature's beauty blossoms. American foreign policymakers became determined to furnish Iran with ideas, commodities, and technologies in an effort to integrate the underdeveloped country into the global, into the global capitalist economy. In this sense, the agenda of Truman's Point 4 program, Economic Aid to Iran, shared much in common with the broader post-World War II discourse of international development, which sought to improve in such sectors as healthcare, education, agriculture, housing, and urban planning. In addition to building dams and roads and to improving rural life and eradicating numerous contagious diseases, the Point 4 program for Iran established a home economics department supervised by the U.S. Department of Education, helping young Iranian women to create a less labor-intensive way of life and to develop good taste in decorating and furnishing their homes. 
This was seen as a pathway leading eventually to an improved economy. Changes brought about by the program were not in and of themselves unique, as hygiene and domestic improvements had been a focus of Iranian reformers and missionaries, specifically American missionaries, American Presbyterian missionaries to the country since the second half of the 19th century. The novelty lay in lay in that these changes indirectly reoriented the Iranian economy towards mass market consumption. Even though the project's emphasis was played on supplying women with new skills and know-how in the domestic sphere, the desired result was illustrated in the actual arrangements of the model houses and were intended to serve as preliminary blueprints for future Iranian homes. As you can see in these images, modes of familiar, familial interaction and privacy in these model homes differed from those prevalent in the usual Iranian house. The Iranian court courtyard house, which was lived in by extended family. In Iran, this traditional courtyard model was an uh, uh, you know, was, was basically a central courtyard with rooms around two or four sides of it. The courtyard house evolved from the geographic, topographic, and, climat and climatic conditions of various regions in Iran, and the overall arrangement of the interior of such a house was based on kin relations. In the traditional house, some herbs and vegetables were grown in the courtyard, and much of the um, much of the Meat and dairy products came from animals raised in the premises. The introduction of different recipes and new rituals in meal preparation and in dining required revised spatial arrangements. This availability, the availability of new products to fill these different spaces transformed the holding the holding's previous economic sufficiency into a fledging unit of consumer spending. Now, this is an image of the traditional Iranian courtyard house. Now, going back to Point 4 program, training included efforts in the Point 4 program. It included efforts to make Iranian women rethink their place within the home in a quite literal sense. Every step of women's activities which in, within the kitchen was recorded, mopping the floor or cleaning the windows, activities that undoubtedly existed before took on new meanings as performed by women dressed in, dressed in Western attire. In fact, what in many cases may have been mindless routine suddenly became a rational habit when performed within the confines of the model house. The whole program was bound to new environments, garments, furniture, and appliances. Without encountering this new economy, Iranian women could hardly become modernized. The model and its contents became a new habitus in French anthropologist Pierre Bourdieu's sense of the term. For obvious reasons, the Point Four program tried to keep its rhetoric innocuous, speaking of official home life and healthier lifestyles rather than of market transformation. But the rhetoric was often transparent. Take something as simple as ready-made ice cubes. People in rural areas and in smaller cities used to collect natural ice from the bases of mountains. Point Four specialists first introduced ice cubes to a large majority of Iranians in the 
early 1950s, ostensibly for health purposes. But more than health was at stake. The introduction of ice cubes fostered a market for ice storage devices and other related facilities for mass production of ice for household consumption. When point four specialists had a hard time convincing people not to use this naturally occurring ice, as in Isfahan, they made the easily accessible free sources undesirable by contaminating them with colored liquids. Meanwhile, the American York Corporation expressed an interest in introducing facilities for manufacturing ready-made ice cubes and ice storage devices. But the introduction of ice cubes was just the tip of the iceberg. In the following years, imported home appliances found a growing number of consumers and as American companies, more than any other Western companies, introduced their building materials, cooler chests, washing machines, vacuum cleaners, ovens, dishwashers, and shiny utensils into Iranian kitchens. By the final months of the Pahlavi regime, in 1978, the public service company of Iran, or Iran, which distributed appliances from American companies, had established itself in 22 cities. The distributor encouraged its regular customers to buy even more appliances by launching a lottery competition whose winner would receive a round-trip ticket to England, along with 10 days accommodation at a quality London hotel. Meanwhile, the popular media of the period contained a surfeit of modernizing, even westernizing tropes. For instance, an article entitled, How Do You Sit?, from a 1946 issue of Tarakri, uh, the magazine Tarakni, which means progress, emphasized that use of a chair, a piece of furniture that did not exist in traditional middle class and working class homes, demonstrated a certain level of sophistication. The author claims that the people featured in the article are genuine Americans, and the author encourages his readers to model their sitting habits after the gentlemen and ladies of New York City. One picture shows an Iranian man a man with his legs crossed on the desk in front of him. The caption explains that the quote-unquote newly Americanized Iranian youth who sit like this do not realize that no well-cultivated New Yorker would ever assume such a position. Advice such as this with accompanying visuals nurtured specific habits with regard to using imported furniture. The modernizing vision pertained to more than the mere acquisition of Western furniture and appliances. It also modeled the proper use of such furniture and fostered social fears about potential faux pas in any encounter with a new material or a new environment. Another ad from the 1950 issue of the popular magazine Tehran Musabbar, or Illustrated Tehran or Tehran in Images, shows a woman standing by a wide open Electrolux refrigerator filled with food and saying in Farsi, quote, My Electrolux refrigerator, which works with both electricity and gas, has made my friends envious. This advertisement becomes even more interesting when contrasted with some of the post war American literature on the subject of economic development. In Problems of Capital Formation in Underdeveloped Countries, a book that was published in 1953, the American economist 
Ragnar Nersk wrote that, quote, in developing countries, the growing awareness of advanced living standards does not depend on the idea of keeping with the Joneses. He added that the propensity to spend depend on demonstration leading to imitation. Knowledge of or contact with new consumption patterns opens one's eyes to previously unrecognized possibilities. It widens the horizon of imagination and desires. In the Iranian case, Nurks's pronouncements falls somewhat short. Traditional Iran was certainly not, not devoid of Jones's type expressions. In fact, the well-known saying, Cheshmoham Cheshmi, or being concerned about one's appearance and status after seeing those of others, could well be an equivalent of keeping up with the Joneses. What Nurks's account helps us understand is how, at least in part, the desire for consumption of foreign goods in Iran explicitly used such socializing devices. The push for change within the domestic milieu was driven thus by two coterminous envies by Iranian social and economic standing in relation to their neighbors and by Iran's position vis-a-vis the more technologically advanced Western country. As technology for reproducing images expanded, high school home economics textbooks, just like popular periodicals, started using even more pictures than before. Just as most of the textual contents of this book, these books was drawn from such magazines at as good housekeeping, so too their illustrations came from Western publications and presented mostly characters and settings that resembled Anglo-Americans. Whatever their previous dissemination, these imported images, which were either facsimiles or imitations of the original, now occupied the pages of Iranian publications frequently enough to enter into the nation's visual vocabulary. Signs of active Iranian family life are absent in these illustrations. It seems that just as in the context of post-World War II America when advertisements, home economic textbooks, uh, women's magazines, and the popular press did not present anything other than white, middle, or upper-class environments, Iranian home economics books also aimed at promoting the Anglo-American vision of home life. These drawings were meant to provide a kind of promise showing standard spaces, gestures, and activities that, if emulated, were expected to allow young Iranian girls to become happy and fulfilled women. Illustrations included in school textbooks were were thus determined by home life as it ought to be, not not as it was at the time. This phenomenon is also reflected in contemporary press images. The American middle-class nuclear family was overtly depicted in advertisements such as this one for the General Electric Snorch Heater. The image, as well as parts of the written message that appear in English, could well have been cut from an American magazine and pasted onto a page of an Iranian publication. When considering this collage technique, no advertisement could be more interesting than this one uh, from a May 1952 issue of Tarakri, again, Progress, where a woman... A Western-looking woman is calling for a lottery competition for a luxury house on Tehran's uh, Shahriza Avenue. 
The teeming masses in the background look as if they could be gathered for some revolutionary rally, except that they're listening to the near hysterical shouts of this woman. The readers were probably expected to identify with the people who had turned towards this woman who looks as if she belongs in Hollywood. Images in press advertisements and school home economics books were similar in a sense that they cut images from Western publications and paste them onto the pages of, um, on a large scale. The way such images were described in school textbooks, however, is certainly different from um, these um, press advertisements. Those who, who wrote school textbooks were mindful of the fact that not all Iranian girls would grow up to live in modern environments and become consumers of the distinctive foreign furniture and appliances shown in the book. Advice given in this 1952 ninth grade home economics book bears witness to this fact. Beneath a picture of an open refrigerator given an otherworldly appeal as it floats in space, a sentence reads, of course, not everyone can afford such beautiful, perfect, and valuable appliances, but we all should make an effort to always keep whatever equipment we have available to us neat and clean. While the image contributes to the desire for fantasy and wish fulfillment, the caption emphasizes that, need, emphasizes that neatness and clean, cleanliness are just as important as advanced appliances. Indeed, it is difficult to say what message the textbook's authors intended to give, since advice on keeping things clean could obviously be given without referring to a fully stocked luxury refrigerator. This example shows that efforts to improve the lives of average Iranians, whether carried out by you know, American missionaries, the Point Four program, other Western countries, or the Iranian government itself brought with it subtle but definite links between the improvement of health and hygiene and the creation of new material desires and consumption habits. Now, this idea also surfaces the artworks that were produced in Iran during that period. Here you can see an artwork that recycles um, uh, Venetian blinds. The other one um, is just portraying um, uh, uh, you know, an air conditioner. The other one portrays um, uh, plastic dish racks. And then another one uh, portrays um, a Coca-Cola bottle. This one um, is for barf detergent or snow detergent, celebrating that one. Now, but not all you know, Iranian media um, you know, appreciated this consumer culture, um, although they all addressed it in one way or another. Um, let's take this film, Under the Skin of the Night, a 1974 production. It uh, vividly demonstrates um, the phenomenon that not all Iranians uh, could, um, you know, could have access to these commodities. Um, here we have an underprivileged young Iranian man who sells ticket at a Tehran movie theater, and then one day he meets a young American tourist who is to depart Iran that evening. The man offers to accompany her, to accompany her throughout her final day in the city, and by the late afternoon, the t the two you know, fall in love and they wish to make love. But as a fresh migrant to the city, he spends his nights in public shelters and so has no place to take this woman. 
In their wanderings, they eventually stop by a furniture shop where they stare at a king-size bed behind the display window. The camera captures the imagination of the young man as he envisions the American girl lying naked on the bed with himself at her side. Shortly thereafter, a group of street men then watch them through the window. By the time of the film's release, the new master bedroom for a married couple, as opposed to the common sleeping room of the traditional extended family, had altered the most intimate exchanges between men and women. Sexual relations among Iranian couples had become more private and romantic. The film turned the notion of the sheltering bedroom into a stage set for public voyeurism. This scene encapsulates what the German sociologist uh, George Simmel once alluded to in his book, The Philosophy of Money. It is the remoteness of the object of desire that gives it great attraction. By the end of the movie, the two main characters have separated, having had no chance for fulfillment. For the underprivileged Iranian, the attractive American female, and also perhaps other foreign objects of fantasy, such as the fancy furniture in the shop, functions as an icon of what, it, what is present and within reach, but ultimately inaccessible. Under the skin of the night, perfectly expresses the frustration of disadvantaged class that has been torn from the security of traditional life, but denied the riches of the modernized consumer society. It's also important to notice that um, a lot of these traditional courtyard houses actually remained in Tehran. So in other words, they were not all destroyed. But they became, especially in southern Tehran, they became homes to um, freshly uh, migrants to the city. These residents were, were from rural areas and had varied ethnic and linguistic backgrounds. And the Iranian... Um, series uh, from the early 1970s, Khane Qamar Khanum, or Miss Qamar's House, is a satirical television series broadcast in early 1970s, captures this very well. Qamar Khanum, or Miss Qamar, owns a large courtyard house that provides rental space for families and individuals freshly moved to southern Tehran. The series found humor amid the chaos created by people of different backgrounds living together, as demonstrated in this scene, where all the tenants insanely plunge into the central pool. But the problem was obviously far more serious than it appeared when viewed on television. Um, also, let me talk to you a little bit briefly about um, a type uh, that was developed during the 1960s and 70s in Iran. This is a kind of type, uh, uh, or you know, also you can call them row houses uh, for working class people, mostly also some middle class neighborhoods. You can find them. So it's it's based on the courtyard model, except that this time uh, you have your rooms organized on the two sides of the central courtyard. Uh, the kitchen and the facilities are usually on one side, and then you know there are two stories on the other side um, accommodating um, these uh, multifunctional rooms. The problem with these kinds of homes is that. As you can see, they don't have visual privacy, and usually they have um, these um, 
uh, you know, fabrics um, that they install in between them to provide more visual privacy. So basically you have visual access to other people's homes, to other people's courtyards. So this model didn't work. Now going back to media, let me talk to you a little bit about um, the impact of this consumer culture on the religious uh, community in Iran. The Point Four program and other American and Western initiatives um, thus deeply impacted indigenous notions regarding the Iranian home and the practices within it in both conceptual and real senses. The results may be found in most unlikely places, including among the pages of Ayatollah Khomeini's illustrated Resale Novin, or New Tawzih al-Masail. The Resaleh or Tawzi al-Masail is a handbook of behavior governing home life, among other issues. It was first written in the 17th century by the mujtahids of the Safavid era, or highest ranking authorities of Shiite Islam. It has been revised since several times, also especially during the 20th century, to correspond to Iranians' changing lifestyles. Khomeini's illustrated Resaleh Novin is the most modernized version of these handbooks, both in its content and its form. Now, this guy, Ayatollah Abdul Karim Biazar Shirazi, and um, here I will refer to him as Shirazi, had always intended to bridge the gap between Western knowledge and traditional Shiite Islam. Illustrations helped Shirazi to fill this gap in a way that was not too removed from his intended audience, ex audience's experience. In the late 1970s, Shirazi, uh, who's a graduate of Montreal's McGill University in the Religious Studies Department, who had also spent some time in the United Kingdom, translated, edited, and designed Khomeini's um, new Tawzi al-Masail, previously available only in Arabic, titled Tahrir al-Basile, and was published originally in 1947. Then this newer version in progress for some years was eventually released in the late 1970s in four volumes, including two on personal and family matters. Each volume features portraits of Ayatollah Khomeini, diagrams and scientific tables, and colorful illustrations in an effort to generate interest among present-day Iranians. The Americans who attempted to reform the Iranian home in the 1950s had come from a generation that used charts and graphs, and these now rather dated materials seem to have inspired Shirazi's editorial work on this Tawzi al-Masail. He claims that the new Risale became the bestseller and influenced the youth in exactly the same way that colorful magazines of the Shah's period had captivated them. It was able to compete with, in his own words, dozens of attractive alternatives such as Marxism and Western pop culture, end quote. The commentaries in the New Rusale define the modern home and practices within it from a religious perspective that sought to recalibrate the determination of the sacred and the profane, setting it within the context of modern products, situations, and activities. Foreign toilets, washing machines, and even a home's large plate glass windows were all subject to classifications based on the old antinomies of halal and haram, or clean and dirty, 
Khomeini's tract displays a continuous conflation of ritual purity as required in the performance of religious obligations with the concept of cultural purity. An important theme in the book are the dichotomies of halal and haram, or what is accepted versus what is forbidden by God, and of taharat and nijasat, or purity and filth. The latter is seen to regulate bodily functions and habits. Shiite religious, um, Shiite regulations governing water, or ahkam ab come to determine the ways in which a believer should use foreign appliances, according to the to this new Tawzih al-Masail, the purity of clothes washed in the washing machine should be determined by the amount and source of water used in the appliance. Detergents have no place in this process of cleansing. Likewise, the use of foreign toilets is legitimate, legitimate only if one brings a bottle of water to use for washing after visiting the toilets. Colorful flowcharts and detailed diagrams help to bridge the gap between a Muslim's daily life and abstract global economic and social realities. Now, the simplicity of some of these diagrams further illustrates that in the end, that what in the end are guides by which to organize one's ordinary life rather than representations of any physical reality. In attempting to bring back Iranians' everyday life to be more in line with orthodox tenets, the diagrams and charts of the new Rasaleh were also an effort toward standardization and rationalization of religious information. In this sense, they embodied the Western orderliness and discipline that had long been encouraged by the Pahlavi state. Like popular illustrated advertisements, most of the images in Shirazi's volume are, by his own account, cut from North American mostly Canadian, as he told me, publications, and then pasted onto the pages of the new Rasale or the new Tawzi al-Masail, creating a montage that depicts Western objects and lifestyles. In addition, just as the commodities of the advertisements are, are labeled, so are some of the objects that Shirazi displays here. In the Family Matters volume, for example, the section that prohibit, prohibits alcohol opens with a labeled bottle of wine, just like the two labeled advertisements that you can see here from the mid-1960s and 70s, respectively, for Smirnoff Vodka and Canada Dry, the wine bottle in Shirazi's book is labeled by a passage from the Surah Maida of the Quran that associates alcohol consumption with satanic deeds. The techniques for making the product look more desirable, such as juxtaposing the Canada Dry bottle with a pretty woman and multiplying the Smirnoff bottle in the backdrop are not used in Shirazi's page. Neither is the composite nature of the uh, is the composite nature of the advertisements, which accommodate several simultaneous but different readings. For example, associating sexual engagement with quenching thirst, a matter of concern on Shirazi's pages. By manipulating the original images taken from Western publications, Shirazi reverses the meanings associated with them in their primary publication. Thus, he gives new meaning to the functions of certain objects through both textual descriptions and pictures. 
This new Tawzir al-Masoel, or Book of Ethics, does help translate the <coughs> abstruse language of Shiite religious text into popular form. <coughs> Excuse me. In doing so, Khomeini's new Rasaleh, albeit perhaps largely through the editorial and graphic contributions of Shirazi, sought to modify Shiite domestic practices within the context of the modernized home. Just as religious ideas in the new book of ethics were adopted by a modern context, the reality of everyday life in Iran from the early 1950s to the late 1970s showed that there was neither total conformity to Western lifestyle and commodities, and nor <coughs> steadfast embrace of traditional values. Similar approaches can be seen in the post-revolutionary period as a post-revolutionary regime made public spaces more religious, people made the private domain more secular. There, men and women would freely mingle away from the watchful eyes of the state police. This social behavior, in the words of sociologist Masirat Amir Ibrahimi, existed, quote-unquote, alongside the Islamic codes, especially in settings outside the direct control of the state in private Modern appearance, behavior, and speech have been the socially expected norm. Now, at first, such behavioral modes were present only in people's private lives, but nowhere in official presentations, or I should say representations. Gradually, however, the media began to address the reality of these forms of sociability. The television series, Pedar Salar, or The Patriarch, which was broadcast once a week in 1995 over the national television channel, took a new bold look at the concept of the, tra the traditional courtyard house. The story is set in an extended family courtyard house in South Tehran. The men, the patriarch's sons, and women, the sons' wives, as well as the patriarch's wives of the family, all conform to the patriarch's rules, as he is the head of the household. As the series progress, this conventional setting is interrupted by the wife of the youngest son of the family, who, upon marriage, wishes to rent an apartment in preference to moving into the courtyard house. This is the beginning of an ongoing argument between the young bride and her strict father-in-law. It eventually spreads to other women in the extended family, and through a chain of events, all the other wives follow the new bride's path. In a broader sense, these young women rise up against the age-old patriarchal system and strive for separating themselves and their husbands as autonomous units of private desire and life from the extended family. This decision agitates the old man, and eventually he loses his control and frantically throws out the belongings of those family members who are still residing in the house, despite many challenging situations, such as the sons being accused by their own father of not being man enough to control their wives. The young men go along with their wives and eventually all move into modern apartments freeing themselves from the restrictive atmosphere of the old dwelling. The series projected the idea that the new generation, even if from conservative and religious backgrounds, 
was in search of a sense of individuality. The younger generation's search for individuality is more vigorously projected in a number of works by Iranian women novelists who challenge the traditional role of women as the housewife and instead call for her identity as an independent individual. Zoya Pirzad's stories stand out from those of others. Pirzad writes about women in search of spaces exclusive to their own living. In her short story, Apartment, or The Apartment, she writes of a woman who wishes to live, to leave her husband, and uses her inheritance to buy a one-bedroom apartment just for herself. As the story unfolds, the reader is introduced to many details regarding the character's actual living spaces vis-a-vis the desired apartment. While the protagonists of Pirzad's novels, which are all set in the 1990s, were dreaming of spaces that might give them a sense of individuality and autonomy, the architects of Tehran were busy making their dreams come true. Today, visitors to Tehran's, uh, especially um, the northern neighborhoods, are often surprised by the glamour and monumentality of the neoclassical style um, of residential buildings. The housing high-rises of the architect Farzad Daliri stand out, among others, sturdy and monumental. The lobbies of these buildings are adorned with elements from classical Greek and Roman, ar- and Roman architecture. Some are embellished by frescoes that resemble Victorian-era fairy paintings. The imagery allows residents to distance themselves from the rigors of daily urban life, oscillating between ancient Greek temples, Las Vegas casinos, casinos, glamorous hotels, and Victorian fairy paintings. These structures have become a sort of escapist Arcadia for both the Islamic Republic's middle class and top bureaucrats in the Revolutionary Guard. The $3.5 million apartment in Tehran is a title of a 2007 report on the Persian side of the British Broadcasting Corporation, or BBC, which features the opinions of some of the residents of northern Tehran. Living in the Heights, or Zendegidar Ertefa, helps to remove oneself from the polluted, crowded streets down below. Some owners have even created their own private parks on the rooftops of these apartment towers. As public behavior has been individualized, so has public architecture been individualized, resulting in novel interior designs and residential architecture unique to the Islamic Republic of Iran. Although Iranians have created a distant, a distinct lifestyle within their private spaces, the fact that it is private has not prevented the governing regime from trying to control it. In recent years, the Islamic Republic's moral police force, or police akhlaqiyanaja, has raised concerns about the mixed gender parties that take place in people's homes and that are reportedly organized via Facebook or the internet. These concerns are reflected in a Mare News article from January of 2010 that provides not only an account of recent happenings, but also a brief history of mixed gender parties. Now, Mare News is is an Iranian publication. So these mixed gender parties are also known as partiyai mukhtalit, in which men and women mingle freely and 
unlawful haram alcoholic beverages are frequently served. The article brackets together these gatherings and those that took hold in the 1970s among the high-class society of mufsids or non-believers of the Pahlavi era calling for eradication of such unethical and immoral happenings in people's homes, the article reassures the readers that those in the Naja moral police take note of all gatherings, even those of the exclusive American com Armenian community in Tehran, which frequently meets in public reception halls exclusive to Armenians. The article goes on to state that the Armenian accused of drinking too much or doing bad masti are only allowed to leave these halls once they are sober. Still, the most serious threat to private space, beginning in the 1990s, in early 90, in the late 1990s, is the official view of satellite dishes or mahbaris, which are considered illegal by Iran's security police force or Police Amniyate Iran. Youths in residential clusters alert others via telephone of the whereabouts of the police, and usually by the time the police reaches the spot in question, the dish has been taken down. Some architects have also played uh, a part in these ethos. By appropriating the already existing principles of the physical segregation of the sexes and the palpable separation of the public and the private, they have achieved a unique style that is neither in conformity with the rules and regulations of the Islamic Republic nor an emulation of the architecture of more open and Western societies. A case in point is Dolat Do or Dolat Second Dolat Two residential complex completed in 2007 by the Tehran based firm Arch Design Studio, a multi-level residential complex of only 535 uh, square meters in size that was nominated for the 2010 Aga Khan Award for Architecture. The main facade is cladding by an external wall cladding which allows changeable configurations decided by the inhabitants. While carefully separated from the public, the private life of the inhabitants can be made visible to passers-by if the wooden lattice screen which cloaks the building like a veil is altered. One may posit that the architect did not wish to change or disrupt the sanctioned way of life, but aimed to suggest an alternative lifestyle using the system's own dictates through concealing and revealing their interiors from and to the outsider's gaze, the inhabitants take control of their private lives and at the same time make a public pronouncement of their uh, variants from a seemingly imposed design. In the words of cultural theorist Michel de Certeau, the designers, as well as those who occupy these buildings, inhabit the text like a rented apartment. They build on the existing sanctioned status quo and create new meanings in response to it, me making it their own. In short, many artists, designers, and architects in Iran have asserted agency in changing their own lives their own lives as well as those of others. But this, but this capacity is entailed not only in those acts that resist the norms, but also in the multiple ways in which one inhabits the norms. 
There has been controversy every step of the way towards modernization of domesticity in Iran. The private domain provided a place for religious Islamists to implement their ideas during the increasing secularization of public space on the pal- under the Pahlavis. Similarly, post-revolutionary Iran's strict mores regarding public and private spaces inadvertently amplified the intermingling of the two rather than controlling uh, the separation between the two. Thank you very much.